people struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline. While people cheating, people lying, leaving everybody else behind. We can wait for somebody else to come along. We can get on our feet and shout it. My name is Andre Walton, the executive director of our Wisconsin Revolution, and welcome to the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast, where we discuss politics, current events, and interview guests. I'm joined by my co-host, Anders Hanhan, who is our electoral strategist here at Our Wisconsin Revolution. How are you doing today, Anders? I'm doing good. I'm really, I love fall. The weather has been perfect with like cold nights and then nicer days, but not too hot. So I'm really enjoying the weather, um, having a good week. Yeah, weather is always a little bit interesting with me because I was born uh, in the summertime, but I enjoy fall a lot more than summer just because I don't know, I'm, I guess because of my personality. I like being at home a little bit more, you know, watching a movie, drinking some some hot chocolate, something like that. So I guess I'm more of a fall guy, despite my my birth, uh, my birthday. But anyways, that's that doesn't matter to this conversation. Um, so, you know, we talked about it a little bit uh, before, but I really wanted to talk about um, the article that was put out in Wisconsin Examiner. And it said Wisconsin's governor's race is the most expensive in the country. And if you go into the article and look into the details, it says the two sides have spent fifty five million since the August primary. It says uh, Tony Evers uh, and his Democratic allies have spent thirty eight million, while the Republican construction magnate Tim Michaels and Republicans have spent 17 million on the race, according to all ad impact, which tracks TV and spending in elections. Now, the reason why I want to bring this up is because. Wisconsin was kind of the the petri dish for the Americans for Prosperity movement and really putting a lot of money after, you know, Citizens United passed. And we've seen a lot of money come into Wisconsin. Obviously, it's a battleground state and whoever controls the state usually goes on to win uh, win the, the presidential election, historically speaking. But the reason why I think this is interesting and I want to take it from a different angle is because as we see more and more money spent on elections, in my opinion, we're seeing an increase in uh, income and wealth inequality. And what that what that tells me is that we need to tax excessive wealth more because the more money that these rich individuals or people have to spend on elections, the more likely that. Uh, income and wealth inequality is expanding. And also when income and wealth inequality is expanding, we're also seeing income or or inequality within our political system. So I have no idea where this money is coming from. I imagine it's coming from Democratic donors all around the country because they know how important Wisconsin is. But what strings are attached you know, coming from that money. And that's yeah. always the question no, that absolutely. I have. And, and this is from both sides, as you can see, or as I just stated, that Evers raised more money than Ted Michaels at this point. Um, and I want to know what, what strings are attached to that. What 
what is being promised behind closed doors to raise those massive amounts of money? Because people don't give those massive amounts of money just out of the goodwill of their heart. They want something in return. That That's how this political system works. And Tim Michaels, we already know what he's going to do. He's going to be a corporate sellout. Um, but it, you know, that's the, that's the angle that I have been thinking about it from the, the, the income and wealth inequality disparity that it's going to increase. And we've seen, uh, this in Wisconsin. I mean, wages have been stagnant. The, the, the minimum wage is still seven twenty five. um, politically, I mean, we have gerrymandering, so, I mean, that doesn't make a difference, but, um, I just think that this shows that regardless of what party is in power, we're going to see a lot of money, uh, influential money come in. And regardless of who wins this race, there's going to be some influence in the governor's uh, race from big money donors. Uh, And I think that's that's just, you know, regardless of where you stand politically, I think you should be worried about this massive amount of income or, or donations coming into Wisconsin, because you have to ask yourself, what are they offering and what are they going to do to sell out the people of Wisconsin to take that massive amounts of money? Um, so, yeah, I just want to get your thoughts on that. I thought this was a very interesting story because of those reasons. I want to get your thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, I think that first and foremost, and, and you were kind of alluding to this, but the more and more money that gets spent in elections like this, the less and less your vote actually matters. Um, you know, when these people are dealing with tens of millions of dollars, <laughs> you know, your the small contributions that you can make in your votes themselves matter less and less. I think also important to note, and <clears throat> not that this is a surprise to anybody, but the out-of-state businessman who, you know, came back to Wisconsin to run for governor to to enforce some sort of radical online right-wing agenda, um, loaned himself uh, $5 million to his campaign. And I think that that just shows again, you know, if you're if you're a wealthy person, it's so much easier to run for office and win than if you're just a normal working class person, working class people. Um, they're making it harder and harder for real working class people um, to to run for office. And uh, again, I would ask that question about what what strings are attached to this money that that Tony Evers is raising four point six million dollars um, is a lot of money. And 1.6 million of that came from the state party, but then the other 4 million is unspecified. Where does that money come from? Um, and of course, we know that Democrats have have deep ties, as do Republicans, with um, the military-industrial complex, oil companies, health insurance companies, prescription drug companies, um, and I think that really uh, should should give people pause, but. I mean, overall, again and again, what we're looking at is just super annoying ads, um, no matter where you go, um, people's votes meaning less and less. And I think also, like you said, um, Democrats are starting to understand, I think, nationally that Wisconsin is really becoming uh, a battleground of of this extreme right wing versus this center neoliberal Democratic Party. Um, and is essentially a microcosm of what went on with like Biden versus Trump. And I think they are are really, you know, pouring the money into this race to ensure that it goes their way. 
Yeah, and that's exactly right. And I and I want to go back to something you said that um, Tim Michaels spent five million dollars of his own money. One of the interesting things about that is that he t- kind of took took the Trump route and said, "Hey, I'm going to self fund my campaign, and I'm not going to you know sell out and take this big money." But then, lo and behold, he's taking that money. <laughs> so, I mean, I think surprise, and, surprise. And, and, and I and I think it's actually a smart tactic because you can at least frame yourself like, "Hey, I can't be corrupted. I don't have strings attached." I'm not going to be working for these big Wall Street people or these big oil companies or whatever. But he is. And we know it. Um, And regardless of if he was, he's part of that class structure. So he's going to do what he needs to do to protect his class interests. I mean, he's a rich business owner. So for anyone who is listening to this, who may not agree with left wing politics, you have to ask yourselves what strings attached are going to be with the money that he funds from these major donations. And I guarantee you, it's not going to be, he's not going to pass policy policies that are in the working class interests. I mean, look at what Scott Walker did over his tenure. Um, So I mean, it even says it in this article, it says before or um, during the primary, Michael's pledged that he wouldn't be taking large dollar donations though. After winning the Republican nomination, he went back on that pledge and said, he'd accept donations of up to $20,000, which is the legal limit. Anders, we know very well that pledges don't mean nothing in this world. Yeah. I mean, how the Democratic Party um, took the no fossil fuel pledge. They backtracked on that. I mean, there was the um, no PAC money pledge by some of the presidential candidates. I mean, they technically didn't take PAC money, but what they did is they did bundlers, which are just as equally as bad. Uh, So, Well, and also Liz Warren did that pledge, but acknowledged that during the general election, she would not follow that and she would take corporate money. Exactly. So we, we know very well that pledges don't mean anything. So anytime I hear somebody agree or pledge to not take certain money or pledges not to do something, I automatically is, uh, that's a waste of time. I'm not going to listen to that. So like, I think it's nice that, I mean, I think politically it's, it's advantageous because you can say, Hey, look, I took this pledge. I'm not taking this money for now. Um, you got to wait for the... money and corruption is bipartisan for sure. So. Yeah, exactly. Any conversation that you have and you're saying like, hey, this money is a problem and it's an issue with both parties. Nine times out of 10 people are going to agree with you. So that's always an interesting part to me. But I mean, you know, in, in looking at this from the Senate part of it, uh, we know that there's equally as much money going into the Senate race between Mel Dalla Bars and Ron Johnson. Um, but I think it's even worse on a national level because there's so much that you can pass nationally to help out corporations. So I'm more worried about it on a national level than I am on a state level. State level is still pretty bad. I mean, but nationally, I mean, it affects everyone throughout the country, not just one state. So that's why I think well, it's even more I- dangerous to have these obscene amounts of money. Hence why I think we should have a tax on excessive wealth. So, I mean, if we go back historically during the um, uh, Eisenhower years, what was it like a 90 percent tax on 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 wealth or something like that? Obviously, that's just, a you know, uh, that's not the actual tax rate that they actually paid. It was just the, the, the nominal tax rate. But the reason why I'm bringing that up is because those those years were the, the the years that we had the least amount of income and wealth inequality. And lo and behold, that's when we had the highest tax rates in, in, in U.S. history. And as a result, political corruption was down 
and uh, political inequality was down. That is why I think we need an ta- a tax on excessive wealth, because when these wealthy people have all this money that they have on hand, they have nowhere to put it because they've already bought everything that they wanted. They they have as many businesses as they want. Guess what they're going to do? They're going to want to start donating, donating to all these politicians, buying elections because they have nothing else to do and they want to influence and have more power in other areas. So that is why, you know, you know, that's why taxing the rich is not just a slogan that we use to fund social programs. It's also about equality. If we don't tax the rich, we're going to have more inequality and more people need to understand that. Right. And I think bringing this back to Wisconsin and talking about, so we talked about the governor's race and you brought up the Senate race. I mean, anybody who goes online, I'm sure has been bombarded by ads that are you know, pseudo racist from Ron Johnson's. Well, they are racist saying that, you know, Mandela Barnes is different, whatever the hell that means. And um, Mandela Barnes talking about how he knows what the price of milk is and talking about how much he loves the police um, in Wisconsin. And it's just like that. The issue, too, is when you have these big money interests, like the discourse around the races is just like horrible. Like, we're not talking about any issues that actually affect people. All we're talking about is how Mandela Barnes um, is a criminal on one side and on the other side, how much he loves law enforcement and how he buys his own groceries. We're not talking about issues like legalizing cannabis, which have, you know, 65 or 69 percent approval in the state of Wisconsin. We're not talking about raising working people's wages, protecting unions. We're not talking about any of that stuff in this race, even though those are all vastly popular and people really care about those things because the big money has come in and, you know, Mandela Barnes hired the, you know, former um, bit high level D triple C member as his campaign manager who can, you know, bring in all that big fundraising money. Um, and, and what happens is not only do we have these people's voices, you know, getting silenced with votes, but also we just have the most toxic counterproductive discourse, you know, we possibly could have. And, well, and, the- again, and, and it's again, not that I, not that I don't, not that I like Ron Johnson, but we, we freaking warned about this. We said this discourse would be counterproductive. We said this would happen months ago and it's just, it's playing out. We have a ton of money flowing into this race and it's no productive discourse is coming as a result. Well, this is the issue. Um, and we've seen this in Virginia with um, what's this? What's his name? Uh, Glenn Young- Youngkin, right? Youngkin. Right. When you let the right. When you let the right choose what the discussion is going to be around, you've kind of already lost, in my opinion. Right. So back back during that election, Glenn Youngkin identified the how what the election was going to be around it. And guess what it was? It was critical race theory. Right. And I think what the issue that I'm seeing from my perspective is that's what's happening in the Senate race. This is all being about defund the police and police funding. Right. Um, and the issue with that is, is if you look on Mandela Barnes, uh, his website, it has very, very progressive policies, but they're very rarely ever highlighted or identified or talked about, which is why I think this is the problem with the race is that the, the issues that you should frame this whole election around aren't being talked about. Mm-hmm. I've, and, and I get I get a lot of ads. I see them, too. 
But I'm not seeing any ads that talk about Mandela's mm-hmm. policies. I mean, he was just in Sheboygan and he was talking about some very progressive things. And I'm like, why am I not hearing this on TV? Why am I not hearing this on YouTube? Because this is what's, exactly. what's going to get people rallied up. Um, exactly. But the only ads that I see, it, there are two ads. There's ads attacking um, uh, Mandela Barr, saying that he's anti-police and that he's pro-crime or whatever. And then there's the ad that Mandela has put out that says, um, you know, he wants to increase police funding, right? Um, which that is what the whole race is about. Why isn't the race about well raising the minimum wage, legalizing marijuana, uh, increasing uh, access to affordable health care? Because obviously, you know, they're not really, um, you know, talking too much about Medicare for all. But like talk about the issues that are going to economically help people. And that is the problem for me with this race. Um, and, and I think it does stem back to the, the money issue, because there is a lot of money coming in from out of state that is attacking him on defund the police because they know that's. Right. What rallies up people. But yeah, I think he I think he could pivot this and really change the conversation. Like every time that somebody brings up police, he could say, you know, I'm not for defund the police. But here's what we need to focus on. And we need to be asking Ron Johnson. Why isn't he focused on raising the minimum wage? Why isn't he focused Absolutely. on legalizing Absolutely. marijuana? Right. Why isn't he focused on making minimum. Wisconsin a more free state? You know, all these things you can frame it. And that's what John and, Fetterman is doing and, in Pennsylvania. And that's why John Fetterman is winning. And, and this is what I was going to bring up. And I talked about this with Eric last week, but I, and I wanted to bring it up to you now as my last point on this story. Um, is that so we know that Mandela Barnes has slowly been doing worse and worse in polling. Um, most polls right now average between a, a dead tie to Mandela being behind, you know, two to four points. Um, and Eric was looking at the cross tabs of the the latest polling and the area in which Mandela is slipping the most, causing him to fall in the polls, is with young black men. So do you think, I mean, and I and I asked this, you know, do you do you think that going out and having your entire platform being that you're gonna increase police spending has an effect on how you're performing with young black men? Absolutely, it does. Absolutely, it does. And the reason that he is he is falling behind so badly in that one demographic is because, just as you said, he's not focusing on the issues that actually affect those people. In fact, he's capitalizing on an issue that makes life for that group of people worse instead well, of talking about the issues that would make it better. Well, as a black man myself, I can <laughs> I got some credibility on this. Well, but, there you go. Exactly. As a young but, black voter yourself. Exactly. So here's this. here's my perspective, right? The issue I always go back to is back in 2018, we had very, very high voter turnout rates. And I was knocking doors in 2018 for Mandela and, and Tony Evers. And when I was in Milwaukee knocking doors, you know was energizing young black men? Legalization of marijuana. Mm-hmm. That is what was energizing them to go out and vote. It wasn't it wasn't highly complicated. I didn't have to do a 10 point plan. I said, look, if you vote, this person is going to fight for legalization. marijuana. It's like, oh, why didn't you start with that? You know what I'm saying? So it's like if if Mandela can focus more on that and target those as I'm telling you, like more people will get out to vote because it's an issue about freedom. Right. Because mm-hmm. young black men, we we very, very much. Uh, care about our freedom and a lot of young black men smoke marijuana and if they can feel that they can smoke marijuana and not feel persecuted in their own communities by the police 
And then guess what? They're going to go out and vote because it's a sense of freedom. They, they don't feel right. like they're going to get locked up by doing something that they enjoy. So that is why legalization of marijuana is such an important issue. And again, Mandela has this on his website. It is one of his campaign He's platform just issues. Talk about it. He's just, he just has to put it front it. and center. Like, dude, blast the ads talking about legalization of marijuana and ask why That's Ron Johnson doesn't want to do this. Why doesn't Ron... consultants yeah. as your campaign manager? And again, dude. again, uh, I think we can both agree on this. We absolutely hate Ron Johnson. <laughs> absolutely. Screw but Ron this, Johnson. you know, and, and, I, and, and, and anybody who thinks that this is criticism to say we want to see Mandela lose, they are trying to look, help. Look, we're exactly. Trying they're to not, help. they're not listening to what we're trying to talk about substantively. The reason why we're talking about this is because we want to see Ron Johnson out of office. <laughs> Cause we're he's terrible. To- we're but, like, but, and again, this isn't meant as criticism. We are saying you can do better in the polls if you do these things. So please, we're trying to help and again, you. Again, and don't take my advice for it. I mean, just kind of look at the historical things that are working. Look at what's working in, in John Fetterman's race. Look how you guys yep. won in 2018. I yep. mean, look how bad um, uh, what happened to the Democratic governor uh, candidate in, in, in Virginia because yep. he couldn't get away from critical race theory. These are the issues that we have to focus on and look at what what historically works and what historically doesn't work. And that's what I'm trying to point out. And by defending yourself on defund the police and having the whole election around police funding, I think it's going to be a complete disaster for Democrats because, I mean, while it's an important issue because people do care about this issue, if you let them identify the election around that, then guess what? we're not going to win. And that's just, well, and, the that's a, and that's the other issue is it's going to screw over people down that the messaging at the top of the ballot is going to screw the people down. Oh yeah, for sure. Over. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, I've already heard people uh, discuss that like, Hey, is this person for defund the police? And guess what I do? Cause I, I knock doors for uh, local candidates here in Sheboygan. I say, nah, she's not for defund the police, but here, here, here's something we need to talk about. You know about the corruption in Madison, all this money is coming in. Oh yeah, yeah, I know about that because I identify. I I choose what we're gonna talk about. I'm not letting anybody yeah. I um, choose what what or frame the discussion because I know what 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 excites people. I know what brings people together. And if we can, if if that can be done in the Senate race, I think um, there's gonna be major changes in the polling. And I think that also kind of identifies uh, an interesting point on the, the governor's race. Kind of go back that I don't think Tim Michaels. And his group are doing a good job uh, of uh, um, constructing or framing the race for them, which is why I don't think Evers is doing very bad because Evers is kind of identified. It's about abortion. It's about education funding for them. It's about it's about, you know, Tim Michaels look like the crazy guy. Yeah. And making him look crazy. And I think that's a good strategy because they are working really well. Yeah. And they are performance Mandela in, in every poll I've seen. Yeah. And that's because, in my opinion, I don't think the Evers campaign is allowing to Michaels to frame the discussion. And I think that's a good strategy, but, you know, I think that that's a good uh, segue into our, uh, our upcoming topic or our upcoming guest. So we have Kelly Westland. She is the Senate candidate for the 25th uh, Wisconsin uh, district. And we're really excited to have her on. She's an OWR endorsed candidate, and we're really going to get into a great conversation and about the policies that she's running on. So stay tuned for this interview and we'll see you soon. Right now is the moment we've been waiting for. Right now, never been a better time. Right now, 
Hey everyone, welcome back to the R Wisconsin Revolution podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Kelly Westland. She is a candidate for the 25th Wisconsin Senate District. Uh, and she also uh, was formerly the Northwest uh, Northwest Regional Rep for Tammy Baldwin's office. So, And she is an OWR endorsed candidate. So we're really excited about that. So thank you, uh, Kelly, for joining us today. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you. I'm so I'm, I'm excited to be here. We're, we're excited to have you. But yeah, uh, just to get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for the 25th, uh, 25th Senate District? I'm so used to saying Assembly District. But I know I can imagine you guys have uh, yeah. <laughs> been on this. Like I, this is a big district and all, but I'm really thankful that um, I only have this one to focus on. So um, at any rate, yeah, I, uh, I live up in Ashland. So about as far north in Wisconsin as you can go. And um, I've been here for a little over 20 years, but former city councilor in Ashland and uh, like you mentioned before, have been working for for Tammy for the last seven years up in northwest Wisconsin. And um, before that, I'm a military brat. So I lived in a lot of different places before I came up here for school um, and went to school at Northland where I got my degree in conflict resolution. And, um, you know, this place, it's a beautiful place. I don't know if you've ever been, but, you know, it, it, it keeps you. Um, it's hard to get away from that big lake. Uh, but I just really love the area. And when I heard that Senator Buley was uh, retiring, it's an open seat. And I know how much is at stake in this election. And just having done the work for Tammy in the last seven years and then the experience at the local level and then all that time uh, working on stuff at the federal level, I just you know bring a lot of experience to the table as far as what I hope to do for constituents in this corner of the world. Well, thank you for joining us, Kelly. Um, so my first question, I, I got into organizing originally um, around climate issues. Uh, namely, I'm from Minnesota and line three runs right by um, my family lake home um, up in northern Minnesota. And I, I got really, really involved with the activism around that. And now as I'm sure you know, the the Bad River Tribe up in northern Wisconsin is fighting uh, a new Line 5 project. Um, same corporation, Enbridge, uh, is trying to run a an oil pipeline uh, through America, but basically from Canada to Canada. So Canada doesn't have to deal with the bad effects of having the pipeline. So being that that is in your district, um, are you dealing with that issue a lot in this election? And, and what are your thoughts on, on that pipeline project? Oh, it's definitely a topic of interest in this election. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, I also kind of came to politics through work in the environmental side of things. Uh, that's actually why I came to Northland College. Is it's an environmental focused school. And um, like growing up watching, you know, the rainforest burn and being concerned about climate change and seeing nothing of substance get done on a policy level. Uh, that was part of what kind of motivated me to get involved in uh, this kind of work to begin with. But watching what's been happening with line five, there are a lot of like pieces of that. Right. So um, I think that uh, first of all, the Bad River Tribe, you know, it's their, it's their land. They have every right to ask Enbridge to remove line five. And Frankly, it's been operating without an easement for, I think, close to a decade at this point. Uh, most of that infrastructure was built, I think, back in the 50s. It's like 70 years old. It's a really old pipeline. And of course, what they're pushing through it has changed over the years. And as they're like using more and more of this like tar stand stuff, they've got to do chemical additives that make it 
more fluid so that they can push it through with less pressure. And we don't, I, at least I don't fully understand what that might be doing to the integrity of the pipeline. So after years of legal wrangling, um, Enbridge has proposed this reroute that rather than going through the, the reservation um, and endangering basically the watershed in part of it, uh, they're going around the reservation, which would then put the entirety of the watershed on the Bad River Reservation at risk. Uh, that's a problem for a lot of obvious reasons, but they, in the, in the um, process of doing that, they would have to cross something like 175 different bodies of water uh, to complete that pipeline. So while Enbridge is definitely trying to give people the impression that this is a done deal, they don't have the permits for, <laughs> for any of that yet. So um, it, I've been talking with uh, folks that are a part of the union that want these, you know, these 700 jobs and they have a project labor agreement with Enbridge. And I understand that there are folks who, you know, look at this and say, well, that's my livelihood. I get that. And maybe they should be a part of the conversation. But at the same time, you're right about a few things, right? Enbridge actually is, an, is a Canadian company and um, they're moving Canadian oil from uh, Canada back to Canada, but through Northern Wisconsin, across the Straits of Mackinac, down through Michigan. And they also have two pipelines through Wisconsin um, that both go from Superior and then um, end in Canada, but, or the refinery, I guess, in Wisconsin. And uh, they've got one that crosses into like the Great Lakes and the other one that goes south and then around Chicago. So already they've got two options and this one's got lawsuits in at least two different places. So I wonder why they're so hellbent on keeping it if they you know, have the ability to go another way. Of course, climate change is an issue. I'm sorry, this is gonna be long-winded. <laughs> It's no, 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 no. Like, it's an important like, issue. Let, let Dive into it. It really, I mean, it is. And the thing is, you know, there are definitely some folks who say, hey, you know what, we've got, we can't flip a switch. We can't just shift off of fossil fuels today. So uh, we've got to just keep this going to keep energy prices down. And I, the problem is, well, there are lots of problems with that statement, but yes, you can't flip a switch. But if you don't actually start building the infrastructure to do renewable energy, then you're never going to get to it for one thing. And at the same time, you're going to continue to pollute by relying on fossil fuels that get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier as we keep going. And um, none of that oil actually comes back to Wisconsin. None of that is used here. There's less than like 3%, I think, that provides propane in Michigan. So it's not actually contributing to, you know, Midwest energy independence in any real way. And the jobs, yeah, jobs are important, but they're also short-term jobs here. And these are jobs that, um, like right now, you look at that sector and there are two jobs available for every one person. We can't fill the jobs that we have. So I don't think it's going to impact the livelihood of the people that are, you know, looking at taking those jobs right now, especially if they can still find work in other places that isn't going to, um, you know, cause conflict in terms of, you know, the sovereignty of the Bad River Tribe. So um, there are lots of reasons in my mind to kind of look skeptically at Enbridge because they haven't shown themselves to be good neighbors. I mean, Kalamazoo is still not clean from, um, you know, an issue that was what, 2010? I don't even, it, it's been a little while. Um, but anyway, I, I just, uh, I feel like it's really short-sighted of us to be, you know, supporting this project to continue propping up fossil fuel industries when we know that climate change is a very real issue of concern. And this area in particular is vulnerable to it, right? In the last 10 years, we've had three FEMA flood disasters um, just in Northern Wisconsin. So if there's a pipeline there, imagine how much worse that could be with the next one. Yeah, for sure. So one of the I have a follow-up, but do my <laughs> oh, yeah, go ahead. Follow-up. Sorry, I, you, like, you can get this all. <laughs> no, I, uh, no, it's that's fantastic. And I think, again, the reason that I'm so excited that you were willing to dive so deep into that is why 
I'm I'm a little concerned that this issue like hasn't been brought up at like the statewide stage at all. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm so excited that like the candidate in this district is so passionate about the issue. My follow up is that do you think that this issue needs to be brought up on the greater statewide stage more often or do you think it's an issue that should be handled more locally? Um, that's a tough one because, you know, we, I, I think that it is, um, we certainly benefit from getting, you know, a little help from our friends. And when it was the, um, you know, concern about go get McTaconite coming to do mountaintop removal here, uh, maybe 10 years ago, it took a statewide effort to put pressure on folks to make sure that that was a project that didn't move forward at, you know, um, to the detriment of our watershed at that point too. And I, I appreciate that the um, work here is an Indigenous-led movement, and they really connect it back to the importance of water. Um, and uh, as far as the statewide, you know, um, aspect of it, there's already been some, you know, con- uh, conversation around a change that happened a few years back that um, included uh, pipelines or you know energy pipelines in the critical infrastructure bill. So now there are concerns, especially coming from indigenous folks who would otherwise have access to that land where the pipeline runs to hunt or to recreate or, or, or exercise their treaty rights, uh, that they could be charged with felony trespass. And um, that's something that, you know, I, there are members of my party who supported it, but that's that's not necessarily a bill that I would have signed on to. Um, and I'm still trying to get my head around that. But I know that it has been something with statewide ramifications and it's certainly one of these things that gets politicized, you know, where it's like uh, you have it's jobs versus the environment. And I, that's not a, a split that I, I buy. That, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. Well, thank, speaking, you for, thank you for answering that. Yeah. Well, speaking of, versus, of jobs versus environment, I feel like when the conversation around uh, addressing climate change, that is always kind of the right to attack. Like, well, we can't do it because we have to protect these jobs. Right. And I think it's always this false choice of it's either you have jobs or you have climate action. How do you, in your opinion, how do you balance that? How do you invest in, in green technology and green energy without making sure that you're leaving people out to dry? Sure. Well, I mean, in my mind, one of the, I'm like, I'm going to keep going back. And one of the jobs I had, um, I worked for this nonprofit that was focused on local self-reliance, right? Food, energy, economy. And a lot of that means making our communities just um, more self-reliant. It's um, when your power line goes down and you don't have another option that's like close to you, then you could be waiting for days, right? Um, And when we talk about the transition into these clean energy jobs, there are a lot of people that say, well, I work on pipelines. And, uh, but the thing is, those are transferable skills, right? And there are also new skills that we can develop without, uh, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here, but if we're talking about, instead of doing the work to keep up a coal-fired power plant, then maybe we are we should be training people how to shift that over to be biomass or some other kind of renewable energy option. And um, it's going to, honestly, it's going to take a lot of work. We're going to need a lot of people employed to be able to really get away from fossil fuels in a sustainable way. Um, and because it's got to be distributed, you know, that means we've got to get people those jobs in every corner of, you know, Wisconsin and the country. Um I think it's more of a, an opportunity to create a lot of new jobs that, you know, more than it is this like um, fight between those two interests. Yeah. So kind of switching away from, from the climate area, obviously um, Wisconsin is one of the biggest victims of gerrymandering in the country. Um, You know, 
the districts have been drawn where basically democratic control of any like legislative power is is nearly a foregone conclusion um but how does gerrymandering affect your district is it like is it a gerrymandered district and then second um you know being that you know we're under no illusion that you're going to be in the majority um if if slash when you win um how are you going to use your influence in the capital in other ways rather than being able to just like legislate in the majority sure so this district um previously was you know the the last gerrymander in 2010 um or starting in 2012 it did uh move to the right but it was still one that was pretty reliably blue it's been blue since 86 um but this year you know they definitely were going for it uh so if uh what what they did is they took out the lacta flambeau band and then instead added in more of western rural wisconsin and um, I think that part of the reason why is, of course, that the uh, Republicans are going for that supermajority in the state Senate. And and you're absolutely right. Wisconsin's one of the most you know, egregiously gerrymandered s- states in the country um, where Democrats can get the most votes statewide and still have maybe a third, <laughs> slightly more of the state house. And in this district, uh, if we went back and um, looked at every single voter who voted in the last midterm. And if they all showed up this time and if they all voted exactly the same way, but we drew the, the new maps, then Janet Bewley, the, the current senator, would have won by only four votes total across the whole district. So it is still a toss up, but midterms, you know, it's uh, they, of course, right now would favor Republicans. And I think that some of those things have have shifted a bit with the news cycle. Um, and who knows what's going to happen in the next five weeks, you know, um, but we've that's part of why we've been out talking to every single voter at the doors to find them wherever they are and to kind of get people to better understand really what's at stake and how important it is that they show up. Uh, and you're right. I know that when I go to the state Senate, I'm going to be in the minority. That's just the reality of the situation. And um, but you know what? We'll we'll do what we can with what we have. <laughs> so when I was working for Tammy uh, and she was in the minority, there, um, you know, there, there are still some opportunities to kind of look for ways to find the common ground to get stuff done as far as like the legislative work. Um, however, one of the things you can focus on is just doing really good constituent services, regardless of like the, the work with the legislative stuff. There are still people who need help with a, with a state agency, you know, whether it's DADCAP or Medicaid or, or what have you. There are always constituents who need help. So you can, um, yeah, do do that work on their behalf and just keep you know, holding the line as far as really bad policy goes, especially in the Senate. If they flip this one seat, then that's all that the Republicans need to get a supermajority in the state Senate. And because this district has two open seats in the assembly as well, if they outperform us here, then they can get two of the five that they need in that house. And I just don't want to see what happens uh, should that come to pass. And I guess the last thing that I'll say is that maybe I'm a, I don't know, hard-nosed optimist, but when it comes to the possibility, right, I do hold out hope that if we can keep uh, Evers and Josh Call in office this time around, in the spring, uh, there is the Supreme Court election. And it's a really big deal. And uh, there's a conservative that's retiring. And if we can flip that seat, then you know Josh Call can take the lawsuits back to the Supreme Court to get things like fair maps and restore voting rights and reproductive rights and environmental protections and all of this stuff that's really important. So um, let's just keep it together, at least through spring, y'all. <laughs> 
Yeah, that's going to be a very important race. I'm glad you brought that up because I think all hands are going to be have to have to be on deck because, I mean, democracy is literally at, literally at stake. I know a lot of people and politicians say that all the time, but in Wisconsin, it's actual an actual thing. But um, I want to ask you about, you know, what what you know, you have a very, very progressive platform. Um, and one of the issues that I always hear from politicians is like, oh, you can't show how progressive you are and they don't do very well and, you know, kind of uh, blue districts or, or purple districts. Um, from your perspective, as, as you've been campaigning, how have you been able to keep your progressive platform and still gain traction in your district? Well, here's the thing, right? I think that sometimes politicians fall into this trap of like, I, you know, <coughs> excuse me, they don't want to like, say what they really think and then they end up doing this like watered down poll tested like consultant drafted version of what they're supposed to say and then folks are like yeah but what are you actually for what do you <laughs> what we, we were you, just you talking actually- about that <laughs> <laughs> and so um but but the reality is like if you can almost take you know the party out of it or like the talking points out of it and you go to somebody's door and maybe they identify as a republican and this has happened to me on the doors a number of times and when i'm talking to um i met a guy who works full-time at Quick Trip, has three kids and his wife's on disability. And at first they're just like, oh no, we don't support Democrats, move along. And I was just like, can you tell me more about that? And as we get to talking, um, you know, he tells me all this stuff. And um, he talked about how expanding Badger care in Wisconsin would benefit people like him. He talked about how he'd like to see marijuana legalized because that's something that can help with pain management, but it's also a way to get a lot of revenues in the state of Wisconsin to help fund infrastructure investment and all this stuff. And I looked at him and I'm like, you know, those are things that Democrats support. Right. And he's like, well, the Democrats are in charge and they haven't done it. And I'm like, what do you mean the Democrats are in charge? And he says, well, the governor's a Democrat. Right. And I was just like, oh, man. So sometimes, you know, you got to stop and be like, OK, well, here's the thing about the legislature. The governor is not a king. He can't issue decrees. But I told him, I was like, I guarantee you, if the if the Republican legislature were to send him those bills today, he would sign Medicaid expansion. He would sign legal marijuana. And he was just like, really? And I'm like, yes, really, look it up, you know? Uh, so when you talk to people directly about their like values and their concerns and you, um, you know, kind of just even talk about it in a way of like without the labels that we typically use, I think that a lot more of us, especially in rural areas, are on the same page. People want affordable health care. I know it's a crazy notion, right? <laughs> um, and uh, when you can put the party stuff aside, honestly, I think that especially rural people that aren't super wealthy have more progressive values than most of us would, you know, think according to what we see on the news, you know? Yeah. And I, and I think that's an interesting point because, um, you know, I've, I've run for office and I ran in a city council race, a much smaller district. Uh, and I live in the so-called most conservative district in my city in Sheboygan. And I, in order for me to even have a chance, I had to frame my conversations in a way that appeals to people. And I never brought up party politics. I just brought up issues that everyone cares about. And once you do that, you can get some very interesting results. So I, I think, you know, uh, and, and you can see this across polling and across like other states, like $15 minimum wage is a very, very popular issue. It's passed in red states. Legalization of marijuana is a very popular issue. It's 69% popular in Wisconsin. Um, even if you look at healthcare, even if you look at like conservative leaning type polling, even like pl- things like Medicare for all poll very well. I mean, so like this notion that you can't win on progressive values just kind of blows my mind, especially if you have conversations with people that avoids all the, you know, the, the hyper partisan um, issues 
um, you can really get some stuff done. And uh, that wasn't a question, but I just wanted to, <laughs> to reply no, to that. I but I know, that, I know Anders has a question. Because that, that, that drives me to, to add on to this. It, it drives me nuts when politicians kind of, you were talking about like this poll tested language. And I think that, you know, there's this idea that, oh, if we find the thing like that, those those few things that we can say that cross, you know, they think will cross party lines, that that will work. But really how it comes off is it just seems so cheesy and like people have a way better BS meter than we give them credit for. And people see right through that. They can see when you're not acting like your real self, and you're trying to like make this different person who is going to be like the the ultimate politician like people hate that and i think on and and a segue into my next question is andre brought up one of those issues um that is really popular that you are running on is legalization of marijuana as he mentioned um you know marquette university did a poll recently showing that 69 percent of wisconsinites are in favor of full legalization of marijuana Yet, um, you know, we have some major alcohol corporations in the state that will send money, spend money to block that. Of course, Republicans have no interest um, in legalizing marijuana. Why do you think that this is a really important issue for your campaign to focus on? Uh, For a number of reasons. Well, so one, you know, people are always asking if you want to make investments in broadband expansion and an infrastructure investment in public schools, like where's the money going to come from? And uh, here's something, this is a great untapped opportunity to generate revenues. Let's, you know, so that's one thing. But secondly, you know, we do have serious issues throughout, especially this district and, you know, other rural places with um, substance uh, use disorders and um, uh, opiates and, and, you know, people that end up buying street drugs that have fentanyl and then we have overdoses. And this is a way where you can regulate it and make sure that it's safe. So it's a consumer protection issue. Uh, it's also a criminal justice issue. How many people are sitting in jail because they have a nonviolent marijuana you know, related charge? And um, th- that costs a whole lot of taxpayer resources and it disrupts all of those lives. It puts like their opportunities for jobs, for, I mean, any number of things to build their own prosperity, like at risk because of a nonviolent drug charge. When I can stand right here and have those things happen and then drive 45 minutes to my east and it's perfectly legal for me to buy it from somebody in a store. Um, And the fact is, Wisconsinites who want to get access, like if they want to go buy illegal marijuana, they're just going to drive to Michigan or Illinois. Uh, That's the other thing. We're surrounded by states that allow some degree of of legality, right? So whether it's um, uh, medical in uh, Minnesota or Iowa or recreational over in um, Michigan or Illinois. Oops, sorry, I lost you guys. Um, so, you know, there are, there are a lot of reasons to do it, but it's also, you know, it's not like we have to to start from nothing. You can look at all the other States that have already dealt with this and find what good policies can work. Uh, and then just like the last bit of that, I can tell you when I was working for Tammy, um, you know, we would talk to people, uh, about all kinds of issues and I'll never forget talking to somebody who worked for the VA and actually talking to some veterans as well, who had basically the same thing to say that, um, you know, when they have chronic pain and are dealing with those things primarily with, you know, opiates, uh, you know, that becomes obviously problematic. And then when the VA starts to roll those things back and say, we don't want to keep y'all on these drugs, then the alternatives are what? They're like, here, take a bunch more ibuprofen, maybe try. I've had, I've had it where people have told their patients that maybe alcohol was an option because they couldn't legally tell them to try marijuana. 
And, um, you know, regardless of what affliction you're dealing with, when it's a, a something that is uh, far less harmful than the painkillers you might otherwise give to people, it's an option that can help a lot of folks that are dealing with, you know, cancer or PTSD or depression or any, any number of things. So there are a lot of reasons to legalize it, I guess. It's- well, it's, it's such a duh issue. It, it, it doesn't even make sense. Um, you know, when when a government at this point doesn't support it, I mean, it needs to be just, you know, go ahead and legalize nationally. But that's neither here nor there. But, um, you know, I would even contest that we have a lot of money given the budget surpluses to fund those things right now. But talking about the budget budget surplus, I am a really conflicted about that. While it's good to have a budget surplus, I think it's very awkward that we have a budget surplus at the same time, cities are struggling to balance their budgets. Um, like I said, I was on the city council and I seen firsthand how we had to make very, very difficult decisions when it came to our uh, budget. We had to, you know, cut some uh, we had to cut some positions. There's some positions we wanted to hire for that we can't hire for because the shared revenue has been reduced by the state government. Um, and I want and I know you care very, very, very deeply about local control and shared revenue. So I want to get your thoughts on what do you think the effects have been on um, local municipalities in your district because of the reduction in shared revenue? All while the state has a what, five, three point eight billion dollar uh, budget surplus, which is very ironic to me. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, just, I'm glad that you said it because sometimes like this is a thing that I can just nerd out about and people are like, nobody else cares about shared revenues. Um, yeah, that, that perspective on city council, you are absolutely right. The way that the levy limits are um, and the declining shared revenues usually puts um, small municipalities in this position where, yes, they've got to lay off people, they've got to cut services, they've got to defer maintenance, they have to borrow money to do pretty basic stuff. I mean, there are cities here that are... Um, tearing up roads within city limits to make them gravel for just lower maintenance costs, you know? And uh, meanwhile, to look to the state and see these, like, you're right. It is kind of just like, wait a minute, we could use that. But there are a couple of things happening, right? Um, I think that we can attribute some of that to this one-time money that's been coming from the federal government for a lot of investments, uh, which also kind of makes me nervous in that when people, you know, take some of that one-time money and they do really, you know, great things with it, they can't rely on that money to continue to come. So they've got to find a way to make it sustainable. That's part of it. But the other thing, in my mind, uh, the reason that money is not being put to good work is because the legislature hasn't met. Like Tony Evers can do what he can do with the powers of the governor, but it's not a whole lot um, when the legislature hasn't been in session since the first week of March and they have no plans to reconvene until after the election. Like if these guys don't show up to do the job, that money is just going to sit there. Um, but you're right. Meanwhile, we've got Towns and um, cities, especially, you know, this far north where, um, you know, open positions or they don't have, you know, fully staffed like ambulance service or um, the crumbling roads. And this stuff only gets more expensive the longer you put it off. You know, <laughs> it's crazy. So, well, you know, and this is kind of a follow up question that coincides with my frustration about the budget surplus, why other things aren't being invested in. For example, education is I'm very passionate about um I'm $38,000 in student debt, hence why I'm very passionate about education investments. Um, but we see this $3.8 billion budget surplus, all the while um, the reduction in, in share and in investment into the UW system has continued to reduce ever since you know the 1970s. And the reason why that's a problem is because students are spending, are investing more into our education than the state. And that is historically have not been a thing. 
And that has caused increase in student debts, um, a reduction in uh, the, the care of facilities on UW systems. It uh, hurts the type of staff that they can hire. Um, so better educated staff, uh, more qualified staff. So it's having a real bad effect, the fact that we're not investing uh, more in our UW systems. And what we're seeing is students are having to take out more loans, private loans, especially if they're not getting getting grants or, or scholarships. And I want to get your, your take on uh, education funding, uh, considering that it is not a priority to the state legislator. What is your take on what we should be doing uh, for education investment? Sure. And I'm going to actually start at the K-12. Like that goes back to the same like levy limits issue in that this is the first budget, I think, since Tommy Thompson, where the state kept its commitment to that two thirds funding for each student. And the problem is that, I mean, that's great. Two thirds funding, woohoo. But it comes back to the school district and because of levy limits, it doesn't actually result in more spendable dollars for schools. It just lowers property taxes for the people that live in that district. So, um, I mean, that's all well and good, but it doesn't actually help our schools at all. And um, when it comes to the UW, I, that that has such potential to be just a powerhouse for economic development, for job creation, for research, technology, like all this stuff. Um, but it, it's not great when we turn out students who have tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. Um, and I think part of it is, uh, yes, investing more in it to bring down costs for families. But secondly, I've kind of been thinking about this. And of course, I'm not the expert. I want to ask the folks who are. <laughs> but finding ways to incentivize the people going through the public school system in Wisconsin, uh, the, the higher ed system to uh, go into those sectors where we've got shortages of, of help, like whether it's education or healthcare, uh, some of those things. And if somebody wants to go to school and get their degree to, to teach, then maybe they teach in a rural school where they've got a, a shortage. And then that is something almost like the PSLF program that can qualify them for tuition reimbursement, um, or, you know, maybe they sign on with the school district in advance and have the cost of their education covered. I don't know what it looks like, but there've got to be some options. The other thing that I'll say is, um, you know, when I was coming up, it was like, you've got to go to a four-year college or you're never going to, you know, amount to anything. <laughs> and um, when I graduated and had a pretty significant chunk of student loan debt myself, uh, you know, I was, I, and I worked like more than one job my entire way through college. And I still came out with tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt. Uh, and then a few years ago, my brother signed up for one of these, um, just like the run by Northwest SEP, you know, training program skills class. And he did well. So they recruited him to go into this other program. And within a year in the local technical college, he got his two-year degree in CNC machining. He got an apprenticeship with a local manufacturer. And by the time he graduated, again, a two-year degree in one year, zero debt, walked directly into a job that was paying like $50,000 a year plus benefits in Ashland, which is a pretty good deal. <laughs> and I'm just like looking at him like, man, why didn't I, what, <laughs> nobody told me. <laughs> so those uh, skills training jobs, you know, whether it's like welding or machining or, you know, whatever, there are all kinds of things, especially with like the timber industry in this corner of the world or agriculture, there are opportunities. Yeah, for sure. And, and that's something that we definitely need to think about more. And I've seen that on your website that you want to, um, put more thought into apprenticeships, which I think is a really, really good idea. Um, but I always find it funny. This has nothing to do with, uh, you know, actual substance, but I always find it funny when older generations, like I worked my way through college and paid off my debt. I'm like, yeah, that's easy to say when college tuition was, uh, the cost of three quarters and a pop tart. It's just like, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> 
It's, but, you know, I just think it's funny that they say that. It's just like, I worked my way all through college, too, and I still got $38,000 in student debt. So it doesn't really work out that well. But that was my last question. So I wanted to give you the opportunity. If there's something that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about, um, didn't want to give you the opportunity to do that. Sure. Um, I think, uh, well, the first thing that comes to mind, of course, is abortion rights in Wisconsin. Uh, we are in a bad place, you guys. Um, I don't know if you know, but um, of course, we're operating under the 1849 law. Well, I know you guys know. Sorry, I, I, that's like my default when I go to somebody's door to ask them about it. No, no, we assume you're talking to the audience. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, they, you know, we're, we're operating under this law and the stories that I'm hearing from people out on doors, I mean, they will just break your heart. And it's, um, there's so much uncertainty, even for healthcare providers, that women who are experiencing miscarriage is through no fault of their own. Right now, they can't get the kind of necessary medical treatment that would otherwise be standard. And I appreciate very much what Governor Evers and Josh Call are doing to try to fight that, along with, of course, all of the, the partners and organizations out in the world to try to fight back here. But um, there's, there's a lot at stake. Uh, I've, I've talked with older women who, you know, remember what it was like before Roe versus Wade when, you know, they needed their husband's permission to get a hysterectomy or to even open a checking account or get out a credit card or something. And I don't like this is really us moving backwards as far as the rights of women are concerned. And that law was passed before we had the right to vote. So we definitely haven't had a say. Um, and now there were two separate special, special sessions that Evers has called for that the Republicans have gaveled in, gaveled out, not done any consideration. And the most recent one, of course, was about the possibility of doing a citizen-led referendum on the issue. Um, but uh, I know that the, the folks on the other side, I'm getting all these like, you know, uh, attack ads, of course, as you'll have. And they're mostly talking about how I'm so extreme because I think that we should trust women when it comes to abortion rights. And they're specifically talking about late-term abortion. And what I'll tell you, again, is talking to people out in the world, I've now met five different women who've had a late-term abortion. And it's not because they were promiscuous or irresponsible or whatever. It's because they had planned for a child and welcomed a child and prepared for one and, you know, were, were, were hoping to welcome that kid when something went catastrophically wrong when they found out that that child was not going to survive. And it's a really hard choice, but I don't think that it should involve all of these like right-wing dudes in Madison telling that woman that she's going to carry that baby to term when she knows it's not going to survive. So um, I, I just, it, it really grosses me out that we're even having to have this discussion that it's um, something that is affecting real people right now and um, the people uh, in charge are trying to insert themselves into a conversation to be, that should be happening between a woman and her doctor or her partner or her priest or whoever she wants to involve in that conversation. But I can guarantee you <laughs> that when you are met with that moment and you've got to find you know, some guidance, you're not going to call your reg representative in Madison to ask them what they think you should do with your body or the future of your family. Yeah, it, it completely blows my mind. I mean, when we kind of when we consistently have these conversations about freedom, I consistently ask, how is the Republican Party the, the party of freedom? I mean, if you look at many aspects, I mean, they, they've done a lot of work to restrict freedom of speech, uh, freedom of expression, freedom to, of your own body. I mean, when, it talk, when we talk about marijuana, that's freedom to do with your body what you want. Obviously, you're not killing yourself using marijuana. So that's part of freedom. Uh, we talk about women's productive rights. So all these things, when we talk about freedom, I think Democrats have done a terrible job of messaging that they're the party of freedom. Um, at least, well, at least some Democrats. I'm, I'll say that. No, no, I but, <laughs> uh, 
But I think, you know, the issue, in my opinion, here is that uh, the Democratic Party and as a whole hasn't really done a good job of messaging that they're the party of freedom and the Republican Party aren't. Because the only time Republicans refer to freedom is they talk about taxes. Right. But and we, we know that based on even if we're talking about in Wisconsin uh, aspect that the the poor and middle class are actually getting taxed worse because of you know the, the reduction in shared revenue exactly so we have a, a, a regressive tax system here in wisconsin in my opinion but i think that's a really good point and i think you know all the issues that you talked about would uh be great for you to elevate while in office so again owr we're going to do our part to help uh try to get you elected and um if you aren't uh, if you haven't heard of kelly Westland at this point Go to her website, check her out. You'll learn some really interesting things about her background, what she uh, stands for. And if you like what you see, go and volunteer for us. Knock some doors for her if you live in, in up in the district. Um, and if you don't, hey, you can volunteer with OWR. We're doing some things, too. So um, there's so many ways you can get involved and helped out. Uh, donate. Um, do whatever you can. So get the word out. Um, Kelly, is there any way that I didn't just plug you that you want people to plug you? you want them to follow on your social media? Um, feel free to. Yeah, I'll just, uh, we are on, uh, let's see, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Uh, but you can also go to the website at kellywestland.com or kellywestlandforsenate.com. And yes, please feel free to come on up to the district. The leaves are turning. It's beautiful right now. We can use you for a couple of days knocking doors because we have a lot of ground to cover. So um, come see the big lake and uh, help you know, support democracy. <laughs> yes. And I can second that. I've been up in Ashland. It's a very beautiful place. I did not want to leave, but hey, you know, I don't get to choose. I didn't get to choose that at the time, but you yeah. can also do phone banking from wherever you are. So very, very true. So thank you again, Kelly, for joining us for the Our Wisconsin Revolution podcast. This was a very enjoyable conversation and we hope to have you on after you win your election. Um, so we're, that's what we're going to speak it into existence now. So uh, thank you everyone for joining the Art Wisconsin Revolution podcast and tune in next time. Thank you. People struggling, people dying. Every day's another headline While people cheating, people lying Leaving everybody else behind We can wait for somebody else to come along We can get on our feet and shout it Right now is the moment we've been waiting for 